Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you, his saints. To those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer, want, and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're we're thankful to be in your presence, Lord. We know even as this text talks about that we're always in your presence, that you're always with us. But Lord, we're thankful for the way that you come and meet with us very personally in a special way in the gathering of your people. We're thankful that we have this opportunity to open your word, to to hear it explained, to meditate on it together. And we pray, Lord, as this text even says, that you would help us to taste and see that you are good and how blessed we are for taking refuge in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you guys ever experienced the exhilaration of a narrow escape? Maybe you narrowly escaped death, narrowly escaped some difficulty and experienced that exhilaration. Maybe you were driving in your car and you looked down, not at your phone, of course. You looked down and you looked up and you realized, I'm going to hit the car in front of me at a very fast speed. Anyone ever been there? This is a safe place to do this. We only have a few cops here, right? And those, those minutes afterwards, you just think of what could have been, and you're just like, your heart's racing, and the thankfulness of that is incredible when you, when you narrowly escape that. When you slam on your brakes, you miss it by inches, and you're just so thankful to God that he protected you. It's an experience that soldiers like King David knew well. You know, David was a soldier. He knew the exhilaration of narrow escapes, and this particular psalm was written right after he experienced just such a rescue. And David is so filled with thankfulness and relief and gratitude that he breaks out in worship. And he's not content to just 
worship the Lord by himself. He calls all of us to join in the worship with him. He calls all of Israel to join in. There's three commands here as he commands us to join him in worship. The three commands are these, to worship the Lord, to taste the Lord, and to fear the Lord. And we're going to look at all three of those this morning. And the first one is to worship the Lord. Take a look at verse three. And if you don't have a Bible with you, just go on your phone and just Google and put in ESV and put in Psalm 34 and it'll bring it up. It's way more fun if you're looking at it. This is a very visual thing. And so uh, look at verse three in Psalm 34. It says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verses one through three actually give us some depth of what worship means. We all have come with our own ideas of what worship is. But as we go through these verses, we're going to see what worship really is. When we worship the Lord, we bless the Lord. Look at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times, as praise shall continually be in my mouth. To praise or to bless the Lord is to speak well of him. So it's to talk about who the Lord is and what he's done. This is the theological content of our worship. Our worship has content about who God is and what he's done. That's what it means to bless the Lord. When we worship the Lord, we boast in the Lord. Look at verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. This speaks to the attitude of our worship. When we, when we worship God, we're actually boasting, we're bragging about how good God is and about how God is better than anyone or anything in the world. Our worship should have a sense of bragging about God. We put our boast in him. Our worship should magnify him. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together magnify speaks of the purpose of worship. When we worship God, what we're doing as we exclaim who he is, is we want to show how good God truly is. And you might get the wrong idea with the word magnify. Magnify is kind of a weird word. You might think like, you know, that somehow this means that God is small and insignificant. Magnify, you might think of a microscope, that God is maybe small and insignificant, and we have to somehow, you know, talk him up. When we talk about magnifying the Lord, like in this passage, it's not magnifying the way you would magnify a bacteria with a microscope. It's the way you would magnify a supernova with a telescope. Okay? That's the kind of magnify we're talking about. God is the greatest of all beings, and yet because of our weak vision, we don't see him as we ought, right? And so we magnify him together in the sense that of looking through a telescope to look at a very massive beautiful thing and make it just a little bit more life-size. And we never quite accomplish that, right? Just like you never quite accomplish that with a telescope. That when we magnify him, we're, we're trying to show him more the way he truly is. And you can see all three elements in, in David's testimony here. Look at verse four. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me out of all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and deliver them. Okay, so David had just experienced some tremendous deliverance of the Lord. And when you listen to this account, it sounds really like clean and, and dignified, you know, that maybe he was in battle or something, and God came through and saved him. The real story, though, is a lot messier, and it's a lot funnier. So if you took a look at the top of the psalm here, it says, take a look at the very top of it before verse 1. It says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So that's the occasion. That's what happened. This is the deliverance. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about 1 Samuel 21.10. 
So the occasion was is that David's being hunted by Saul. So David's been anointed king. Saul believes himself to still be king. He's pursuing David. David flees. He goes to a place called Gath. And there he's confronted with King Achish of Gath, who this text says Abimelech in, in 34, but that was a title basically for the kings of the Philistines. So he arrives in this place of Gath and he's confronted with the king there, the Philistine king called Achish. And this is what it says. And David rose and he fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to the king, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Did they not say Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Okay, this is a problem. The reason this is a problem is because David actually has killed their champion, Goliath, and he's killed a whole lot of Philistines in the process. And so when he comes into this land of Gath, the servants of the king, Achish, are saying, like, isn't this the guy that killed a bunch of our, our people, a bunch of our troops? And so David has gone, like, kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? He's gone from running from Saul, and now he's going to maybe be killed by this king. It says in verse 12, and David told these words, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so David, brilliant military tactician that he is, came up with a plan. Do you want to hear the plan? It's really interesting. Verse 13, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard, as one does, right? As one does when they're, you know, confronted with such danger. You, I know what I'll do. I'll pretend to be insane and drool all over my beard. And then it says in verse 14, And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought me this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so he kicks him out. It worked, which is crazy. Don't try this at home, okay? And so David, he doesn't credit his own cunning. Go back to Psalm 34. He doesn't credit his own cunning. He sees it as answered prayer. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me out of all my fears. Those who looked to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, talking about himself, cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So he sees it as answered prayer. That, that's insane plan worked. Literally insane plan. And he also sees his angelic protection. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He's like, it looked pretty crazy. It was really answered prayer, and it was really angels protecting me. Isn't that amazing? I wonder how often, guys, angels keep us from dying. You ever wonder that? It'd be a very biblical thing to wonder. I wonder if in the world to come, we're gonna, they're going to tell us. And you'll be like, dude, like, I'm a horse veterinarian, so they're probably like, you were a full-time job. <laughs> like, we were constantly keeping you from dying. David knew that it wasn't his acting skills and it wasn't his saliva-covered beard that saved him. It was the Lord answering prayer and protecting him by angels. Notice that David invites all of Israel to join the worship because of his deliverance. And you might think, this is kind of a weird, kind of self-centered song. You know, it's about his deliverance. And you guys should all worship because I got delivered. You might think, like, well, why would they be so emotionally invested in David's deliverance? And the reason is, is that David was their king. David was their king, so whatever happened to the king happened to them. The king's victories were his victories. You guys remember in the challenge with Goliath what the terms were. You know, David said, if, if I win and defeat you, then all of you are going to become our slaves. And if, 
If you win and I get defeated, all my people are going to become your slaves. Whatever happened to the king happened to the people. The king's victory was their victory. When the Lord delivers their anointed king, he's delivering all the people who trust in him. And that's why all Israel should join in and, and worship the Lord because of this victory. And, and you might ask, well, what kind of worship are we talking here? Worship takes many forms. We worship kind of in private. We worship in, all, in our work. We worship in our service. What kind of worship is this? Well, this, guys, is the kind of worship we do gathered together, is God's gathered people worshiping together. What we're doing this morning, that's the kind of worship he's talking about. Notice in verse 3, the with me and the together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is talking about the kind of worship you were just doing, the kind of worship we're going to do more of this morning. It was pretty common, early 2000s, late 90s, it was really common to talk about like, well, you know, this isn't, you know, everything there is to worship. You know, worship isn't just singing. Any of you guys old enough to remember that cliche? You know, worship isn't just singing, worship is, and it's like, well, yeah, but it usually is in the Bible, actually. Almost always when the Bible talks about worship, he's talking about what we just did. So, yeah, you worship in your work, you worship in your service, you worship by loving people and serving them and all that, but actually when the Bible talks about worship, it's almost always talking about what we just did, and that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about gathered worship. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You guys realize that God, from the very beginning, has always wanted a visible, gathered people to worship him together. The Lord has not desired only solitary individuals worshiping in the privacy of their own homes. That's not what God's been after. You can see it in him calling Israel, and you can see it in him calling the church. He's not looking just for solitary individuals to worship him privately in their own homes. He's looking for a visible, gathered people that will worship him openly, okay? So this is his preference. A lot of times we think, well, you know, I would kind of prefer to do it a different way. This isn't really the way I would design and stuff like that. But guys, I want to remind you that this is a worship service, and the service is to who? To who? Okay, I just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we forget, okay? You know, the Presbyterians call it a divine service, so you, you don't forget, you know, who the service is to. So it's a, it's a service for God, and this is what he desires. He wants a gathered people to praise him, to boast in him, to magnify him in public, no less. Crazy, I know. In public. Just do it out there in public. The Lord wants a visible people, not a virtual people. The Lord wants visible, gathered church worshiping him in public. And, and if that's what he wants, then that's what we give him. And we like doing it. Take a look at the second command here. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's a command, you know? There's a command. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's a weird command, isn't it? It's an interesting command. It's a command to experience and enjoy God's goodness. You like that? You know, we heard the Ten Commandments, and we're all like, yes, that's true, that's good, that's right. This is a fun one. You know, taste and enjoy his goodness. David wanted to tell all of Israel that God is good, but he didn't just want them to know that God was good. He wanted them to taste that God was good. That's part of the reason he tells the story, right? God's the kind of God who rescued their king when the king's best plan was to pretend he was crazy and get spit all over his beard. Like, that's not a plan. That's the opposite of a plan, okay? And yet the Lord delivered him. 
right? God is so good, and he does it again and again. Guys, the goodness and the grace of God is the only explanation for why we're still here. Amen? It's the only explanation for why we're still here is the goodness and grace of God. We've done so many stupid things, haven't we? And yet, over and over, the Lord blesses us in spite of ourselves. God is so gracious, you can just taste his goodness in this passage. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's a really vital part, guys, of worship. Because the essence of worship is not just to have right doctrine, but to have right desires. Amen? Worship is not just about having right doctrine, but right desires. It's not just about having right actions, but right appetites. We need to taste and see that he's good. This reminded me while I was thinking about it, one of the criticisms that you hear of modern worship music is, it's so emotional. So much of your emotion. So much, you know, talking about how God makes you feel and things like that. And I'm like, I get you, man. You know, not like the Psalms. Right? Are you kidding me? Like, David is singing about his emotions all the time. He overshares. He's totally TMI. Right? And he's always sharing about his heart and his love and his delight and his enjoyment and and how, how good God is to his soul. Guys, true worship is not only about right doctrine, but about right desires. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's about proclaiming not just who God is, which is the most important first thing, but it's also about communicating how much joy we found in him. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. I love this. He said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. Worship is about both knowing him truly and enjoying him fully. Third command, fear him. Take a look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He talks about fear here. Fear actually appears a few times in this text. If you look in verse 4, he says that the Lord saved him out of all of his fears, all of his terrors, and we know what that was. He thought he was going to die. And so the Lord saved him out of all of his fears, verse 4. So the fear of the Lord that's in verse 9 is actually a fear that casts out all other fears. Like if we would truly fear the Lord, he would cast away all of our other fears, all of our other terrors. So what is the fear of the Lord here? Well, this psalm doesn't like define the fear of the Lord so much. What it does is it describes what it looks like when someone has the fear of the Lord. So take a listen to this. Verse uh, 11, he says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He's like, let me show you what the fear of the Lord looks like. And then in verse 12, this is what it looks like to fear the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he might see good? Anyone? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So what does it look like? If you have the fear of the Lord, what does your life look like? It looks like using your words only to bless others. It looks like telling the truth. It looks like consistently choosing to to bless other people instead of cursing them. And it looks like being a peacemaker. That's what he says here. He goes, let me show you what the fear of the Lord looks like. And And he shows this kind of life. The fear of the Lord, guys, looks like one living in a way that they know that God is near and he sees and he hears everything we do. That's what it looks like to fear the Lord. It's somebody that knows that God is near and that he hears and he sees everything we do. Take a look at verse 15. 
The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Someone who has the fear of the Lord is somebody that lives in the awareness that God is near and that he sees and he hears everything. Now, knowing that, it changes our lives. We live a different way. And a lot of you guys have somebody in your life, I think probably everybody has somebody in their life that makes them better just when they're present. Like when that person's present, when that person's around, you're a better person, right? You guys have that? This is the way marriage works, right? Marriage works this way. Statistically, married people usually eat healthier, sleep more, use their time better, and save more money. Why? You know why? Yes, they're being watched, okay? (laughs) They're being watched, right? You know, so you get questions like, are you going to eat that for dinner? (laughs) Or they call you and say, are you just waking up now? Or will you be wearing pants at any point today? (laughs) Or what did you just buy? Right? Those who fear the Lord, guys, have that kind of relationship, but with God. Okay? Those who fear the Lord have that kind of relationship, but with God. Those who fear the Lord know that they're being seen by the Lord. When you have the fear of the Lord, you live differently knowing that God is present and sees you. You don't live different in public than in private because there is no private with the Lord, right? You don't live different in public than in private because there is no private with the Lord. You live, uh, older authors used to call quorum Deo, which is a Latin phrase that means before the face of God. That you live with an awareness that you live constantly, quorum Deo, before the face of God. This fear of the Lord, this living knowing that God sees and hears, this quorum Deo living, it's not a burden, I know for some of you that are here that aren't believers, you hear that and you think, that sounds like the ultimate surveillance state. That sounds like living in North Korea. But that's because you view God like Kim Jong-un. We don't see him that way. We, we don't see God that way. In, in the gospel, we know God is our father and that he loves and defends us. And so we love the idea of him seeing and hearing everything we do and always being near. Amen? In Christ, God's face is for us, not against us. Take a look at verse 15 again. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, listen to how we would read this passage and what a comfort it would be. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's Coram Deo. That's that the Lord is near and he zeroes in on us, especially when we're brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. Do you guys see how the fear of the Lord, like knowing he's near like that, casts out all other fears? Like the more we believe that, the more all other fears are gone, right? His nearness means not only that we live seen, but that we live secure because he takes care of us. And this psalm is all about that. And, and you might get the impression, though, when you're reading this psalm, like when David read the whole thing, you might get the impression that somehow, that if you believe this, you would believe that, like, everything's going to go great in your life, you know? These, these promises sound so all-encompassing that you're like, maybe they think that Christians' lives are perfect and everything's going to go great. 
That has not been the experience of our people. <laughs> that's not been the experience of our people in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or any of your experiences. And that's not even what this psalm teaches. Look at verse 19. What does it say? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So deliverance is certain, but deliverance isn't necessarily immediate. You guys can all attest to that. God delivers us through affliction, not immediately from affliction. And he delivers us, guys, just like he delivered our king. Just like he delivered our king, Jesus, right? Did you guys notice the bit about the bones in verse 20? It's interesting. So 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And then this is the interesting part, verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's a strange promise. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. It's a strange promise, right? He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You think, like, what's the deal with the bones? Did you guys wonder that? I mean, you guys, you guys have that on a coffee mug? <laughs> Not one of my bones. He keeps my bones. You're like, this is, you know, <laughs> doing your devotions. It's an interesting verse, right? It's like, what's going on here? You might think, well, like, well, what's the significance of bones? Uh, what, what would you say are the top three verses on bones in the Old Testament? Anyone? Anyone got one about bones? Ezekiel. You like Ezekiel, Valley of the Dry Bones? That's on my list. What else? Exodus 12. Don't you steal that from me. That's coming later. Don't look it up. That'll ruin the ending. It's a spoiler. Okay. Anybody got another one that's not going to spoil something? Anyone else? Joseph, right? You remember Joseph concerning his bones? He didn't want his bones to be buried in Egypt. He wanted them taken to the promised land. I think the two most famous would be that. It'd be Joseph, you know, the writer of Hebrews talks about that Joseph showed great faith by telling the people, like, when I die, take my bones to the promised land. Don't bury them here in Egypt. And then the other really common one would be Ezekiel. It's a really famous passage about the valley of the dry bones. Uh, a couple of things we can gather from that is in the Old Testament, they would have thought of their bones as the thing that will be around long after you die. Okay. Long after you die, there's still the bones, right? And the bones are what's left of you. That's why Joseph requested his bones be taken, not his whole body because it wouldn't have been around. Just take the bones. It also, the bones would symbolize what's left of our body to resurrect. It's like what's left to resurrect of us, you know? In Ezekiel, the Valley of the Dry Bones, if you guys don't know that story, so he has this vision. He goes out, it's just a field of bones everywhere, human bones. And he prophesies and the spirit causes the bones to like clank and come together and rebuild. And then their skeletons, and then like their flesh comes on, and then they come alive, right? It's this vision of resurrection of, of God's people, Israel. The bones are what's left of God to resurrect for, of us. He keeps all our bones. Not one of them is broken. Our bones have a future long after our bodies decayed. Our bones have a future. So though, you know, through aging or disease, I might one day just be reduced to bones. And some people are, you know, they, at the end of their life, they're just bones. We all will certainly be reduced to our bones, but these bones have a future. You know, like it was asked in Ezekiel, can these bones live? They can and they will, but how? Well, that's where we need to move ahead in the scriptures. Where is this verse, verse 20, quoted in the New Testament? Does anyone know about the bones? What's that? John 19, right? So it's a crucifixion. Take a look at this. Really cool. You want to look at it. John 19, 31. So this is Jesus is on the cross. 
This is Good Friday, and it says in John 19.31, Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The deal is, is when people were crucified, so Jesus being crucified with two other people, when they were crucified, it often take days for them to die. So they're like, let's cut to the chase, we can get this over with. So you break their legs, and so everybody suffocates, okay? Because they can't push themselves up to breathe anymore. And then in verse 32, it says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and the other person on the cross, on the other cross, and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. At once there came out blood and water. He who saw it bears witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe. For these things took place, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Quoting the psalm, right? It's kind of a weird thing for John to be excited about. So he's like, yeah, Jesus was whipped, he's beaten, he's crucified, he's pierced, but bones are still good. It's kind of a weird thing, right? Like, what's going on with this? Well, it points back to that psalm, but it also points back to what Marcello was trying to ruin, which is that thousands of years, guys, before Jesus was crucified, when God's people were coming out of Egypt and the plague of the death of the firstborn is about to happen, God gave his people directions on how to, to keep the Passover. And they were told to kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts so that when God sent the angel of death, he would not kill the people in that home, those people that were believing in the Lord. He would see the blood there, and he would not kill those people. He would pass over them. But there was also this instruction about the Passover lamb, and it was in Exodus 12, 46. It says, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Okay, so even as they kept the Passover for years and years and years, way after they left Egypt through the Exodus, whenever they took the Passover, they were not allowed to break the Passover lamb's bones. Just like the the soldiers were not allowed to break Jesus' bones. What's the point? Jesus is the true Passover lamb, right? He's the one who was slain instead of us. He's the one whose blood is the protective covering that saves us from the wrath of God. He's our substitute, Jesus is the one who was condemned instead of us. Go back to Psalm 34, verse 21. It says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. None who take refuge in Jesus will be condemned. None who take shelter under his blood, like the blood was put on the doorposts of the homes. None who takes shelter under Jesus' blood will be condemned. So I just ask you this morning, have you taken refuge in him? Have you taken refuge in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus such that God sees you as taking refuge inside of him, that you're protected by the blood of Jesus from, from the judgment to come? Have you done that? You say, well, you know, I grew up as a Christian. You know, oh yeah, I believe. I, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, have you taken refuge in him though? This is, a, this is a thing where you actually come to him and you receive him and you take refuge within him. Or have you decided to just see how it goes on your own? Anybody want to do that? Anybody want to see how the judgment goes on your own? Guys, we know how it goes. Just like the Egyptians whose houses weren't covered by the blood of the lamb, they bore their own condemnation. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you will bear your own condemnation as well. And that 
forever. But what's offered to you here in Psalm 34 is the ultimate escape, guys. This is, the, this is an escape better than David's escape. Your sin puts you in the greatest possible danger, hell, from the greatest possible king, God. No amount of cunning was going to free you from the judgment of God. No plea of insanity was going to free you from the judgment of God. No plea of ignorance or hardship or weakness or anything was going to save you from the judgment of God. But what we have here is that the king himself provided you the greatest escape. He substituted himself in your place on the cross for your sin. He must really, really, really like you. Have you taken refuge in the blood of Jesus? Any of you? Do you realize the love that is? It's insane that, that God himself would take your place in what seemed like kind of a crazy plan, but through his resurrection, God delivered him. Guys, you remember how I said that Israel rejoiced in the deliverance of David because David was their king? So whatever David's victories were, were their victories. His victories were theirs. The same holds true with Jesus, guys. That his victory is ours. And through the resurrection, our king, like David, was delivered. And because our king was delivered, we enjoy his victory. We will be resurrected as well. Like Jesus, guys, no affliction we experience in this life will utterly break us. Think of Jesus waking up on Easter morning, and he's like, kept all my bones. Not one of them was broken. Cracks his back, stretches, walks right out, totally fine. Guys, like Jesus, no affliction we experience in this life will utterly break us. Like Jesus, you might cut us, you might bruise us, but you will never break us. The Lord keeps all our bones, not one of them is broken. When, when Christ comes again, we will rise and be resurrected and made new, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and we're going to live in that restored new world where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Go back and look at this psalm, and you'll notice so many emphatic promises of deliverance. Notice all the alls and nevers and no and none. He's emphatic in his promises of deliverance. You might say, well, you know, I read this and are you sure that God is going to deliver us like that from everything? And I would just say, give him a minute. You haven't seen the end of the story yet. Resurrection's the end of the story. When we're restored in the resurrection, we will, verse 4, be saved from all our fears. When the resurrection comes, we will, verse 5, never be ashamed. He will, verse 6, save us from all our troubles. We will, verse 10, not lack any good thing. We will then, in verse 17, be delivered from all of our troubles because he will, verse 20, keep all our bones for that day. On that day, guys, verse 22 says, none who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so what do we do? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack no good thing. Father, we are so thankful that you are so good and we taste it. We taste your goodness. We taste your goodness in the deliverance of David. We taste your goodness in, in our deliverances every day and the, all the ways that you've delivered us that we haven't thanked you. But ultimately, Lord, we thank you in the deliverance that has come to us from Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, the one who covers us, the one who protects us, the one who we have found refuge in.
We pray, Lord, as we sing, that we would sing as those who have tasted the goodness of that. And we pray as we take the Lord's Supper, Lord, that it would be another way in which we taste and see. We pray all this to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.